get to work hard, spread nice to you, I'll tell of how the good old union is coming here to dwell. Hello everyone, uh, I'm Sam Browse, I'm part of the volunteer team at Labour Outlook who are uh, behind this event today and I'd like to welcome everyone everyone to the event to discuss why Palestine matters. Um, like I say, today's forum is organised by Labour Outlook, which is a fast-growing website bringing you daily news and views from across the left and those at the forefront of resisting the Tories and it's kindly streamed for us today by Arise, a festival of left ideas. Although it was called some months ago now, this is now a particularly timely discussion in light of the latest Israeli government aggressions and atrocities we've seen against the Palestinian people in recent weeks. For many of us who have been active in solidarity with the Palestinian people over the years and the decades, it's further confirmation of our need to stand firmly in solidarity with Palestine and call out the backing of our UK government, the US and others for Israel's illegal occupation and abuses of human rights, including through arms sales. And certainly, I remember one of the first campaigns I was ever involved in was against Operation Cast Lead in Gaza in 2008 and 2009. Since then, the situation of the Palestinians has deteriorated even further, making a need for solidarity and to amplify Palestinian voices even greater. It's also a really necessary discussion in light of the Labour front bench's clear shift on foreign policy in recent years, away from the popular anti-war internationalism that was put forward under the previous leadership under Jeremy Corbyn, and despite the overwhelming and historic support for solidarity of the Palestinians at Labour Party conference that we've seen. So to discuss why Palestine matters, we're today joined by Bernard Reagan, who's a long-term campaigner for and writer on Palestinian rights. Uh, he's a member of the Palestine Solidarity Campaign Executive Committee, and he's the author of the Balfour Declaration, Empire, Mandate and Res Resistance in Palestine. He was the first recipient, too, of NUT Steve Sinnott Awards in recognition of his contribution to international solidarity. That was in 2015. We want to have as many questions and comments from the audience today as possible. Um, because of the size of the audience um, today, with hundreds of you joining us, we've had we have volunteers who are going to, go, um, going to be facilitating this through the Q&A function in Zoom. So please po post both your comments for discussion and your questions to the speakers in the Q&A function. That's just below on your screens. Um, we'll have time for a few rounds of questions from the audience after the speaker. Um, and during the event, you can also tweet at Labour Outlook. We're at Labour Outlook, all one word, and also tweet at Arise Festival. That's at Arise underscore Festival. So also, uh, I should really stress too, if you can donate at the link provided, that would be fantastic. The only way we can put um, put on events like this is through, is through your donation. So please do donate and please do hit that donate button. Um, now I want to go to our speaker, uh, Bernard Reagan, who is going to speak, um, do a bit of an introduction, and then we'll open the floor to questions. Bernard, over to you. Can I thank Labour Outlook for this invitation to come and speak and commend you on organising this event, which I think is uh, extremely important. Um, just, Sam, if I may, please don't take it as a rebuke, but it's Reagan, not Reagan. Um, I hope you'll understand the historic significance of uh, why I'm uh, sometimes sensitive about the way people pronounce my surname, but it's Bernard Regan. Anyway, um, I want to commend you particularly for organising today's event because, uh, of course, the 15th of May is the day designated by the Palestinians as the day to commemorate the Nakba of 1948. Um, the Nakba is the 
name that is given to the events that took place in 1948, when essentially the paramilitary organizations, following a long plan and rehearsal of objectives by the various constituencies that eventually formed the Israeli Defense Force, the Israeli military, carried out uh, a vicious assault on the Palestinian people, which resulted in 750,000 Palestinians being expelled from their homes, from their towns, from their villages. It led to their land being stolen. It led to their property being stolen. It led to their businesses and the industries and the commerce which they had been involved in being taken by uh, the Israeli forces. So it's a very important day today to commemorate that and Palestine Solidarity Campaign, uh, as others across the globe, um, held a demonstration on Saturday uh, commemorating that event. And today at the United Nations General Assembly, there's also an event to commemorate the Nakba. Uh, It was voted by a majority of members of the General Assembly, interestingly, to note that the UK and the United States of America were two of the countries which did vote against it. But the Nakbar is, if you like, a defining moment, but it's an ongoing situation. In 1948, what happened, as I said, was that 750,000 to 800,000 uh, Palestinians were expelled out of a population of about one and a quarter million uh, Palestinians. Uh, they were forced to flee their homes, uh, to take their possessions and literally leave without any kind of notice or any preparation. And it was also carried out by the paramilitary organizations, the Irgun, the Haganah, and other people, atrocities which are documented and well-documented, such as the massacre that took place at Dera Yassin, a village just outside of Jerusalem, where something like 70 to 80 people were murdered. Not the only massacre that took place. And there, are, there were many that took place like at Al-Tantura, where it's estimated, and the figures are hard to kind of absolutely confirm, but figures varying from 70 to 200 people uh, have been identified as having been murdered. Or Safad, Mm -hmm. with 70 people being killed, or Akka, with 100 people being killed. And these are just a few. There were many more examples of uh, the sheer murder that took place. And very often these operations were carried out in a similar way to the British had operated in 1936 and 39, when they'd suppressed the Palestinian anti-imperialist, anti-colonial revolution that took place. Uh, The military surrounded three sides of a village, leaving only one exit point uh, and carried out their, uh, you know, horrendous attacks uh, during the course of that. So it's a long-standing atrocity that uh, is well-documented. And the whole thing, as I said, was planned. It was called Plan Dalat. There was uh, several versions of it, but this is documented by, uh, you know, well-respected historians who actually have put down the chronology of this and the details of what actually took place. And the tragedy, of course, is that over those last 75 years, the Nakba has continued. Palestinians have continued to have their rights denied. They've been forcibly evicted. They've suffered suppression and oppression uh, right across. As you mentioned, Sam, at the very beginning, uh, there have been numerable fatalities. And in the last quarter, or the first quarter of this year, rather, uh, those fatalities have increased seriously in terms of deaths that have occurred on the West Bank and, and in Gaza. In the last few days in Gaza, and, and these figures obviously change as, as more news comes in, 
but something like 34 people were killed over a two-day period in Gaza when the Israelis launched a vicious attack uh, on, on, on residential areas, uh, killing, uh, they claimed that they were targeting militants. That aside, as a, we can discuss that as a different issue, but many, many people who were clearly not combatants, uh, children uh, and people, men and women who were clearly not in that category, uh, were murdered during the course of that exercise. And this has occurred especially since the election of the new Netanyahu government, which took office in the end of December 2022. And this kind of ramping up of a very, very vicious, I would say, uh, environment is, is clearly a consequence of the kind of politicians who constitute the cabinet that is now uh, leading the government in Israel, which includes people who uh, quite openly declare themselves to be uh, thoroughly reactionary uh, and, and, and um, you know, committed to uh, not accepting any notion, even of a two-state solution or any other kind of resolution of, of the issue. Uh, in the first quarter of this year, uh, and again, this is the Nakba continuing to act. In the first quarter of this year, the number of homes and houses that were demolished uh, of Palestinians more than doubled in comparison to the last quarter, to the comparable quarter in 2022. We saw many, many people being expelled. Uh, we saw uh, 413 residents being displaced, 290 structures being destroyed. But in addition to that, and this shows the kind of, and I don't think there's another word for it, the arrogance of the Israeli government, 43 donated structures were destroyed, and that includes uh, European Union and non-EU donated buildings uh, for use by Palestinian communities for various in various uh, capacities. Uh, they were destroyed along uh, at the same time. Friends of mine, um, the late Nina Franklin, who used to be the president of the, or was the president rather, of the National Union of Teachers, a fund set up in her name, established schools in the South Hebron Hills, uh, which also have been destroyed. Just school buildings with uh, chairs and tables and computer equipment and so on. And in recent days, um, the Israeli military uh, came and destroyed that building. And they do that under the pretext of claiming things like in the West Bank, this area of land is been, has been designated as, as a firing zone for military practice. And because there's live ammunition, we have to uh, remove all the inhabitants and all of the buildings which the people use. And that was the kind of excuse that they have used, particularly uh, in the South Hebron Hills, where a, a community of more than a thousand uh, people living in that area had schools and had the buildings and so on where they lived uh, under threat. So the Nakba is what happened in 1948 very much. And the sort of figures that I've talked about, the size of the population that was expelled is, is you know, absolutely horrendous. If you drew any analogies and comparisons to Britain, for example, with our population of 60 million, you're talking about perhaps 40 million uh, people being expelled. That That's the kind of comparative size that you're thinking about. Uh, so this offensive, as I say, continues until this day. And its origins, and this is where the issue of why is Palestine an issue for Britain, why where this uh, originates from, is the attitude and the policies agreed by the British, which go back to 1917 and the Balfour Declaration, 
which was a statement that promised uh, Her, Her Majesty's government, I'll read the wording of it, uh, His Majesty's government view with favour the establishment in Palestine of a national home for the Jewish people and will use their best endeavours to facilitate the achievement of this ob- object. It being clearly understood that nothing shall be done which may prejudice the civil and religious rights of existing non-Jewish communities in Palestine or the rights and political status enjoyed by Jews in any other country. Now that was adopted in, in 1917. I'll make some comments on the text. It wasn't the first occasion on which the British gave an undertaking they would help the establishment of the creation of a, a, a Jewish homeland. They had in fact talked about this at the end of the 19th, beginning of the 20th century, uh, when they talked about creating a colony in East Africa. Uh, And that was because not all, um, at that time, not all Zionists had the uh, view that a Jewish homeland had to be on the territory of Palestine itself. But when we come to 1917, the declaration is very clear. And what's significant about it, as I'm sure you will have recognised when I read it through, is that it doesn't mention the Palestinians. It talks about the non-Jewish communities. So they are kind of, you know, not given a recognition as a peoples. Their right to self-determination isn't acknowledged in any way, shape or form. Despite the fact, and this is well documented and it's in the historical accounts of the whole period, uh, there was a situation where the Palestinians were, were, they had members of parliament actually in the Ottoman parliament. And there was more democracy for the Palestinians under the Ottoman rule than there was under British colonialism uh, between 1917 and 1948, and obviously subsequent to that time under Israeli control. So the Palestinians were very clear, and they made this point to the League of Nations. The League of Nations was the body that was established after the First World War that became, if you like, the authoritative or international uh, body that was established, although the United States didn't wasn't part of it, but nevertheless uh, the United um, the League of Nations actually endorsed what Britain had said in the Balfour Declaration and gave a mandate to the British. And again, this year, uh, twenty twenty three is the hundredth anniversary of that occurring. So all of these actions were legitimating the British occupation, and when the British occupied. Notionally, the mandate was meant to be a precursor to creation of independent uh, states in the Arab world, uh, but the British never had any intention of that. Very much the case was that uh, the proposals that they put up for legislative councils and other organisations really offered no democratic control by the people on the ground. It wasn't representative of the demographic balance that existed on the land at that time in which um, the Palestinian Arab communities, Jewish and Christian, represented somewhere in excess of 80-90% at certain stages of the population. Uh, And it completely uh, presented formula that were meant to be uh, the forerunners of some kind of democratic control, but in actual fact always uh, was subject to the veto by the British of stopping anything happening and saying, you know, so far and no further. And the British, and I, I, this is one of the things that I you know, think we need to kind of underline, one of the things about the British uh, decision to support the creation uh, of a uh, Jewish homeland in the area, in my view, 
was not to do with sympathy for the Jewish uh, people who had suffered violent pogroms in Eastern Europe in the end of the 19th century, in Russia in particular, but also uh, on the eastern borders of Poland and Ukraine and countries like that. The, the attitude of the British uh, was more inclined, in my view, to be formed by their concern for three things. One was their concern to maintain control over the Suez Canal. The second was their concern that they should have a land uh, bridge from the eastern Mediterranean across to what we call the Persian Gulf or the Arab Gulf uh, around the area of Basra. And the third thing was their concern for India. This is what really drove the British. As, and, and also their concern, one other element within that equation, was also their concern for oil. As early as 1912, as early as the beginning of the 20th century, oil became a factor. And we know, obviously, that it's very much a factor today with containing the largest reserves or amongst the largest reserves in the world for oil. Uh, and that's why the United States and in a subsidiary role, the United Kingdom continues to be uh, preoccupied with what happens there and what the political uh, equation is and how that's working out. Having done that, I want to jump to the current situation because what is happening is, in my view, that the British have created in a document called the UK-Israel 2030 Roadmap, a strategic alliance with Israel, which they spell out and they give 10 or 11 different kind of components of it that they want to see part of this relationship and how it should develop. But it's interesting because in that, again, the Palestinians are not mentioned at all in the whole document, apart from one line. And that one line says this. It says, we will cooperate, i.e. this is allegedly Britain and Israel, which you know you can already be cynical about. It says, we will cooperate in improving Palestinian livelihoods and Palestinian economic development. So their interest is not in the recognition of the rights of the Palestinians to self-determination, to the ending of the occupation and all the brutality associated with it. Their concern is only to see the Palestinians as some part of an economic equation, which clearly is something that they want to pursue. So in my view, this strategic alliance is a new variation of the Balfour Declaration, uh, how ironic and how insulting that 100 years after the League of Nations mandate was given based on the Balfour Declaration, what we've got is a renewal of the same kind of political expression by the British. And of course, this is tied in with, and they make this statement in the document, two or three other things which won't surprise people on this call, but includes, for example, saying that the whole equation, the whole memorandum of understanding and now the document is actually tied in with the Abraham Accords, which are agreements that have been signed by Israel with a number of countries, not all, but some uh, Arab countries, including uh, the Kingdom of Bahrain, including the UAE, Sudan, Morocco, uh, and so on. And the purpose of that, those accords is to let to establish bilateral relationships between Israel and those countries in order to normalize uh, and to present Israel as though it was just another country in the Middle East area. But significantly, these documents of the Abraham Accords were underwritten by the United States of America. 
and they are part of the signatories to these documents. And they were authored by by no less than Donald Trump. But they continue to be, if you like, foregrounded. And the British UK Israel 2030 roadmap that I talked about actually cites these accords as being part of their understanding of the political uh, dimensions of that. And I think this is significant because I think that what's behind this is uh, the American strategy to the whole of the Middle East. And to some extent, and people may find this unusual for me to say, but if to some extent I think Israel is being used as the potential gendarme, if you like, for the Middle East to ensure that uh, the United States desires are delivered in the area. And that's uh, part of the way in which the whole thing is expressed. Uh, but you have to remember that when you talk about, for example, uh, world reserves of oil, uh, 53% of the world's oil reserves are in this region. 50% of the known gas is available in this region. So the United States contains an interest, although there are elements that are emerging that are, if you like, throwing into question how stable this situation is. Um, when you look at Israel's kind of ambitions, one thing that I think people don't talk about, of course, is the fact that it is a superpower. It has, uh, and we don't know the figures, it has somewhere around 400 nuclear weapons. It's not a signatory to the Non-Proliferation Treaty. It's a, a member of NATO. It's engaged in joint operations with NATO in the Eastern Mediterranean, and it sees itself very much as a player. We know, for example, that it's carried out military interventions in Syria, in Iraq, in Jordan, and of course, much earlier in Egypt and elsewhere. So it sees itself as, you know, a, a significant force within within the region. And the developments that are taking place, uh, like, for example, the discovery of a vast uh, gas reserves in the eastern Mediterranean, means that it is building alliances in order to kind of uh, solidify its position. So it's a member of the Eastern Mediterranean Gas Fund, which is a, a body uh, that involves Greece and Egypt, Cyprus, uh, and now uh, added to the equation is uh, the potential for Turkey to become a member of that. Uh, allegedly, Palestine is a member of this, uh, of this body, although to what extent they have any leverage over uh, anything that comes out of it by way of the way in which the any presumably any royalties or any kind of revenue is distributed, I don't have any idea. So Israel very much sees itself in that role. The issues that I think have uh, thrown throw some kind of um, unusual elements into the the equation is is what is happening in the Middle East more generally, and and that is, for example, that you've seen the uh, phenomena um, of China acting as a broker between Iran and Saudi Arabia in reaching some kind of rapprochement between two countries that have for a long time been at odds. And as we know, Iran is the bete noire of the United States of America and of Israel as being the foremost protagonist and uh, hostile kind of component of uh, the uh, Arab world in the region. Uh, but China is kind of playing a part in that. And the reason for that is that China's Belt and Road po policy, uh, which is linking up something like 60 countries on the land-based route that is being uh, developed, um, ends in the Middle East region, 
or comes to one of its critical points in the Middle East region. And also there is a maritime version of that as well, uh, which they also are in the process of developing and developing as well um, a set of relationships in the Gulf area. So I think one of the interesting things is going to be is how this plays itself out uh, in terms of Israel kind of being in a position to um, actually play this dominating role that I think the United States of America wants to assign it. Uh, but I think, um, you know, it's going to come under various pressures, as we saw, and I'll just return to Palestine on this, as we saw in 2011 with the Arab Spring and the potential uprisings of the Arab peoples against absolutely autocratic reactionary regimes in numerous countries across the region. And it's a personal view. But my view is that one of the reasons why the Palestinians are suppressed is because I do think that a Palestinian state would uh, offer a completely different model of political progress in the region, which would be challenging to all of these people like the Saudis uh, and like the other uh, oligarchs who, who run uh, neighboring countries. And it's, it, it's a, a questionable, it's a debating issue. I'm not being absolutely um, assertive about it. But I think it's part of the equation that we're seeing. So why Palestine? Because I think the Palestinians have a right to self-determination. I think they have a right to return to their land. They have a right to be treated with dignity. And uh, as this afternoon, as I was talking, chatting earlier with, with comrades, um, Francesca Albanese, the UN rapporteur on the occupied territories, is very much of the view that the right to self-determination of Palestinians is absolutely vital. And as part of that, the world needs to understand that they are suffering under a regime that can only be described as an apartheid regime, which treats the Palestinians in a racist way, which is completely unacceptable and against uh, what are notionally the international norms by which countries should be governed. So I think the cause of Palestine is the cause of the Arab peoples of the Middle East as well. But clearly, Palestine is the issue that we're talking about today, and that is what's on the agenda. Thank you for your time. Just before we go to uh, questions um, uh, and contributions, and just to remind people who are, who are listening in as well, if you've got a question that you'd like to ask Bernard and enter into a bit of discussion on, um, remember you can post it in the Q&A, which is just down there. But before we go to questions, um, I'm just going to go very briefly to Fraser Maguire, who's a Labour Outlook contributor and a RISE volunteer. He's going to tell us a bit more about today's organisers and what you can do to support them. Over to you, Fraser. That's brilliant. Thanks, Sam. Uh, my name is Fraser. Uh, I'm a volunteer and contributor to Labour Outlook and Arise Festival. Uh, and I just want to thank everyone for watching this important narrative shaping event on Palestine. We're only able to hold key events like this because of support from ordinary people who watch these events. And we do rely on donations to continue this important work. The donation link is going to be posted in the chat below. If you are able to contribute, any donation amount that you're able to put will have a big difference and it will go to continuing to support future events like this. The work of Labour Outlook as an independent and left media outlet brings readers positive news and analysis about progressive movements and campaigns across Britain and the world. And it, has, it plays a very important role in shaping these narratives. If you haven't checked out the website before, please take the time to have a look at some of the fantastic content on there. Or if you have checked it out, consider becoming a patron yourself. At the end of this month, on the 31st of May, the Arise Festival is starting, which will, which will be a month-long session of online events, bringing the left together and talking about socialist solutions to the capitalist crises we face. 
There'll be speakers including Jeremy Corbyn and John McDonnell, as well as leaders of trade unions, campaigners and grassroots organisers from across the country. If you'll be interested in attending this event, please consider also getting a ticket where you can donate and help fund the costs of running these online events. Thanks to everyone for attending and watching this important event tonight. Thanks that, Fraser. Yeah, and just to highlight, as Fraser said, um, it's donations that allow us to do the, put on these events. All of these events kind of have overhead costs, so please do, please do donate and please do check out the website as well. Um, some fantastic content, you know, really keeps you abreast of kind of latest developments on the left, both in the UK and beyond. Okay, cool. Uh, I want to go to some questions now. It's fantastic. We've got hundreds of people on uh, on the call from across different platforms, um, calling in from Southport, Italy, Islington, Ireland, Coventry, Birmingham, France, Suffolk, Edinburgh, Hayes, Stockport and beyond. So um, quite a mix of people from all over the place. So yeah, we've had a few questions. Um, I'm going to kind of group some together for you, Bernard, that we had from people in the audience on Zoom. You talked a bit about um, the kind of motivation, the sort of strategic motivation um, behind the kind of US's involvement and backing of um, Israel, which was really kind of really useful, I thought. Um, and kind of two kind of questions that are related to that. Um, you've kind of covered the first, which is why does Biden continue to provide political backing to Israeli human rights abuses? But another question is, are there any divisions and to what extent do you think they're significant um, in this in the US establishment on the Palestinian question? So are there any kind of div divisions in kind of US elites? And a kind of another one, which is about the sort of geopolitics of all this, what's, and you, you kind of touched on it a bit in terms of those sort of more kind of personal remarks that you made at the end, but what's the attitude of the ruling classes and oligarchies and other Arab states to the Palestinian struggle? And does the recent agreement between Iran and Saudi Arabia to restore diplomatic ties open the door for greater regional support for justice for Palestine? So sort of four related geopolitical questions for you. And then, uh, yeah, once you've had a bite of those, perhaps we'll come back to some more as well. I can see people are asking more questions in the Q&A now. As far as the US backing for Israel, it's pretty well been unquestioning um, in terms of the administrations, successive administrations have by and large acted in the same way. There has been little or no difference between the Republicans and the Democrats on their attitude. Uh, the only kind of variation, and in a sense this was post-presidential, uh, was um, Carter's statement when he actually, uh, he wasn't the first, but he was one of the most prominent figures who actually began to use the expression apartheid when looking at the state of Israel and its treatment of the Palestinians. So there is certainly a kind of discussion and a debate. Um, I wouldn't go so far as to say that there is, a, if you like, a cohort within Congress or within the Senate uh, of substance that can actually shift uh, the positions that have been held by uh, successive presidents. Uh, but certainly uh, there are people that you were aware of um, uh, like the people who supported Bernie Saunders and one or two of the people uh, around the um, uh, senators who, who who take that view. Uh, but it, interestingly, and in a sense more interestingly, uh, is the debate within the Jewish community in the United States of America, where there is substantial evidence that among uh, young Jews, there is a very critical attitude which has evolved uh, into a significant number. I don't have 
I don't have any figures that I can quote at you, but uh, certainly it's viewed as as a a real uh, su substantial support, uh, and it's a criticism that is um, going, you know, gaining ground and gaining traction. What isn't the case um, is that unlike here, is that there is any uh, development, for example, with the trade unions. Um, as far as I know, I'm not aware of any significant trade union nationally in the United States, which has adopted a position critical of Israel. I am aware of individual chapters of unions and um, branches and local locals, as they're called, uh, who have a critical view. Uh, there has been action going back some decades now, but there was action in California by some dockers refusing to handle goods on a, um, a ship that I think was carrying arms that were either from Israel or going to Israel. I know there was uh, action by them. Um, but in terms of kind of the trade union movement as a whole, it isn't like here where you can, we can say that the trade union movement uh, is not unanimously, but is very substantially in support of the Palestinian people. And of course, uh, so is the rank and file of the, of the Labour Party by and large, even after uh, we have seen comrades leaving um, as a result of the, you know, the treatment that um, Jeremy Corbyn has, has uh, faced. Um, the, the Labour Party conference in, was it 2021, passed a resolution uh, which was very positive, and that is formally still Labour Party policy. But as far as the US is concerned, no, that I, I'm not aware of any major currents. I, I won't say there's not a debate. Clearly, there are academics, uh, there are people like Chomsky and, and other people who do voice critical views. But the real kind of signifier of where the United States stands is that it gives uh, Israel uh, $3.8 billion a year in aid. Uh, that $3.8 billion, or maybe $4 billion now, um, was a long-term project. Um, I think it was actually most recently adopted uh, under Obama. And it's a 10-year project. So it's you know, not just a one-off and the form of the aid that is given is largely for military equipment or to purchase military equipment. When the US gives aid to other countries in the world, it normally has some sort of monitoring process uh, to, to check where the money is spent, uh, allegedly to ensure there is no corruption, there is no misuse of funds and all of that kind of thing when it's making donations in Africa, sub-Saharan Africa, or in other parts of the world. But actually, in respect of Israel, there's no such conditionality attached to the donations. So in terms of the position of, of, of the presidency and in terms of Congress and Senate, um, there is no substantial kind of divisions that are taking place there. Talking about the position of the um, various uh, regimes across uh, the whole of the Arab world, uh, I think that's interesting. I mean, one of the amusing phenomena of the World Cup was actually seeing the response of people uh, and support that people expressed for Palestine, which was kind of very evident in the stadium. It was evident with some of the teams. I think the Moroccan team carried the Palestinian flag onto the ground. And again, there was absolutely spontaneous support for that. So I think amongst the Arab masses, I think there continues to be uh, support for Palestine. But I think the regimes that are in operation in most of those countries are much more tied to their um, 
relationships with the United States of America, seeing the US as their guardian of last resort, you might say, in terms of their interests. Um, and I don't see any significant difference in respect of that. Um, and even, uh, and, and this is a, a, an area that I'm not kind of expert in, in, in any sense, um, but an area that, that clearly we have to, we should take account of uh, in, in examining the situation is what is happening inside Israel itself. The Israeli government is a completely reactionary uh, regime. Um, some of the comments that they make uh, in relation to uh, the Palestinians, for example, they quite unequivocally say things like, uh, you know, they have no intention of negotiating for a two-state solution, even retaining the rhetoric, let alone coming to the table and actually concretely discussing it. And they also sort of have the attitude that um, the Palestinians should actually leave. I mean, recently there was a, a vote condemning one of the Israeli cabinet ministers, Smotrich, I think it was, uh, which took place in the uh, lower house of the Jordanian parliament because he'd uh, been seen giving a talk uh, in front of a map uh, which actually displayed the greater Israel or Eretz Israel, which incorporated not only uh, the area of the West Bank and Gaza, but went into Jordan and into Syria, taking the Golan Heights. In other words, these are the people who are the heirs of a, of a man called Jabotinsky, who was uh, what, what they tend to call or is, is named as a revisionist Zionist, who was an ultra Zionist in terms of his attitude. I mean, there, there are interesting things about Jabotinsky, which I won't go into now, but um, his vision and on their cap badges of the uh, military uh, that uh, he organized, the paramilitaries that he organized in the 1930s and 40s, the cap badge that they wore on their heads showed this map of this greater Israel, which his ambitions were, uh, you know, which were his, uh, that was his ambition. And so Smotrich is, if you like, an heir of that tradition within Zionism, of expansionism, uh, colonizing and so on and, and, and driving people out. And, you know, it's just mentioned in passing, of course, that 47%, 47% of the West Bank is under the direct control of Israel. So, you know, when one talks about two-state, there's a big issue that one has to, to look at. So as far as the ruling oligarchs are concerned, there may be gestures uh, like the response of this lower house of the Jordanian parliament, uh, maybe some statements that are made, um, donations of money that are given to build schools or to build hospitals or some kind of um, gesture, which of course may not be insignificant, but in terms of the political issues that are central and core to resolving the problem, of course they make no real declarations on that. The situation about the, the the Saudis and Iran, I think, is 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 fascinating. I I have to confess, I don't understand why it's taking place. I understand from the Chinese point of view, uh, clearly from the point of view of the Belt and Road Initiative, from the point of view of the Maritime Belt and Road, and this um, desire they have to um, uh, establish trading relations in the region, is obviously tied into the fact that. Uh, China imports, I think it's something in excess of 30%, maybe as high as 37%. I can't remember the exact figures, so forgive me if I got that completely wrong. But a significant amount of um, 
fuel is is imported by uh, China, and obviously uh, the most convenient resource for that is is the Middle East region. So they have an interest in as much as uh, that's something they want to retain surety about in terms of their own economic uh, development. Uh, so I'm sure that's that's why. But how the uh, Saudis were, pers- and particularly it would be the Saudis, I think, how they were persuaded to come into some kind of, and it's it's only at the moment at the level of, uh, as Obama did with Cuba, for example, it's at the level of diplomatic relations. It's not at the level of a real integrated um, you know, partnership in any sort of uh, deep meaning sense. But it obviously it may foreshadow developments that are going to take place further on. And and as well in, in, in kind of looking at what is happening in the region, uh, we've also seen the Saudis um, facilitating the re-entry of Syria into the Arab League, um, giving it uh, a, a sort of certain legitimacy in the terms of the Arab world, where the Arab world had very much acted... Um, I, I'm, you know, this is not a uh, exonerating Syria or exonerating Bassan, but in terms of kind of the processes, uh, what happened was that you know that, that Syria was being treated very much as the Americans uh, were treating Syria as a, a country that was a failed state and so on, and that was uh, you know riven with all kinds of um, uh, internal disputes and also an extremely anti-democratic, repressive regime. All of which was completely true. Um, but it's interesting that uh, Saudi uh, Saudi Arabia has been the country, uh, as I read it from all of the information I can get, uh, that has actually facilitated the re-entry of Syria into the Arab League. Now, whether this is part of a greater, uh, longer-term game plan, I don't know. But I think what it indicates is that maybe the Americans are jumping the gun in kind of militarily, uh, or well, they're not, no, let me, Row back on that. They haven't militarily withdrawn, but in terms of ceding the kind of principal role to Israel as their agent in the area, they may be kind of jumping the gun on that if these other kind of elements that are in the equation uh, come into play with reconfigurations of, of relationships across the region. But I, I think it's perhaps too early um, to speculate on that. And I'd confess to, you know, not having really the full knowledge of all the implications of that and having looked at it. But certainly it, it strikes me as very interesting, uh, those sorts of things happening. Yeah, thanks. That's fascinating. Uh, yeah, I guess putting those things in the context of sort of heightening tensions with China and things like that as well, and and the kind of weird contradictions that throws up as well in the situation, that's super interesting. On that, just to go back to, I mean, you mentioned the Belt and Road Initiative. Whilst you were mentioning the Belt and Road Initiative, um, you talked about the role of kind of India uh, in, in the past and, and why and the, and the, the kind of relationship um, Britain's um, Britain's relationship with India had now that affected its relationship with with Palestine. Um, so Vera on Zoom says, "Excellent talk, Bernard. Thanks." <laughs> uh, you mentioned earlier in your talk that the Balfour Declaration was partly motivated by Britain's concern about India. Um, could you elaborate on that, please? And then I've got another question from Barbara who'd be interested in your views about the role the Israelis advanced desalinization equipment, which gives it more water than it needs, despite blocking Palestinian access to safe water. Does this support its role in the world Gulf dominance now and in the future? And then, oh yeah, this is an an important issue as well, especially in the context of the Nakba 
someone else has asked, what's the importance of the Palestinians' demands of the right to return, um, as mentioned in Labour Party policy on Palestine in recent years and in your speech? And obviously I was at a um, Labour Party conference when uh, that, that motion passed and it was pretty historic. Um, so yeah, three three topics for you there. One on um, Britain's relationship with India and how that affected the Balfour Declaration. Another on desalinization equipment and um, access to water and how that affects um, Israel and Palestine's role in the uh, in the region. And then finally, the um, the, the right of return um, uh, in the Labour Party policy. I mean, in terms of India, I think it really is a fascinating question because um, I wouldn't say I was heretical, but I, I, I insist on um, the, na- the nature of what happened in this region and what happened to the Palestinians as being driven by British imperialist interests uh, and not just by, although it is entirely true that there was a symmetry, if you like, between the ideology of certain Christian uh, Zionists, you might call them in 19th century Britain, and the uh, nature of the religious beliefs and and traditions that people like uh, Lloyd George held to, and all of these kind of things were completely true. but I, I have a not a, a, a brutal, but I have rather a materialist view of the world that suggests that those things may have been a component and may have given, uh, if you like, the political ideological framing of the way in which Britain progressed on the issue. But if you read through the documents of the cabinet meetings, um, you can see all sorts of things coming into the equation. There was a very interesting cabinet paper presented by Lord Kitchener, um, the one who you remember from the famous poster, you know, your country needs you. Exactly. Well, well mimed, Sam. Um, And that um, document was called something like, I think the name, if I remember correctly, was called Alexandretta to Mesopotamia. Mesopotamia, by the way, was the then British name for Iraq. So it was a document that spelled out the strategic interests of Britain in relation to a port which was in the northeast corner of the Mediterranean. If you think of the Mediterranean as a kind of rectangle, uh, then in the top right-hand corner, in the northeast corner, uh, there's a port called Alexandretta. Uh, And the suggestion by um, Kitchener was that the British should seize this uh, when the Ottomans were defeated after the First World War, uh, and that a railway should be built from there to Basra. That is across Iraq uh, and down to the Gulf, the Persian Gulf, the Arab Gulf. And that was his suggestion. And he argued it very cogently uh, in terms of British interests, that it would. uh, the key thing was that uh, they were concerned that India was under potential threat from Russia. I'm talking about imperial Russia. I'm not talking about post-1917 Russia, obviously. But they were concerned that that interest... Uh, went to the extent that the Russians wanted to, and this is, again, why Afghanistan was an issue for them, they wanted to actually have a port on the Indian Ocean for access for Russian vessels because the only ports that they had available were either in the Archangel, which were frozen for large parts of the year in the winter months, um, or potentially through the Black Sea, which they were concerned uh, could always be closed as a facility because uh, the Dardanelles, the the, the straits, um, could be shut, and their vessels could not 
uh, sail, uh, you know, further than the Black Sea. So the idea of having access to the Indian Ocean was a real issue for Imperial Russia. And within that, uh, the fate of Afghanistan, and this is why one of the reasons why Afghanistan in the 19th century, and of course today, continues to be a part of the political equation of the area. Um, they were concerned about Afghanistan. They were concerned about India. And when I talk about India, of course, I'm talking about Pakistan, India and Bangladesh, because this is pre-partition uh, in the beginning of the 20th century. And uh, the British, of course, as, as people will know, ruthlessly, ruthlessly exploited India uh, to the extent that they took uh, raw cotton from India, transported it to Britain, where it was uh, spun into yarn and woven into cloth and then sold back to the Indians. Uh, and in the course of that, and this is imperialism and uh, colonialism and so on, uh, they refused to allow or they prevented the Indians from developing uh, their own indigenous industries that could actually perform those functions. And, you know, even to the level of denying people the right to become trained and qualified in levels of engineering and so on and so forth that could service and maintain and ensure that that, that industry functions. So India was a vital part. It, you know, the jewel in the crown is not a, a you know, a cliche. It's a real uh, expression of the realities of the role that India played in terms of British imperialism and the British economy. So being able to have this land-based journey uh, that Kitchener was um, spelling out uh, would actually have uh, meant that it cut off something like 10 days or 14 days uh, for British troops to be transported from the Mediterranean to India in the event that Russia would launch an attack. So it was seen, you know, he had a, a military vision of the necessity of this. Um, Britain, of course, had all of these coaling stations. You know, if you look at the Mediterranean, it had Gibraltar, it had Malta, it had Cyprus. So, you know, all the way along. And then, of course, going through the Red Sea, it had Aden. All of these facilitated uh, British merchant fleets, which constituted, by the way, 50, 51% of the world's, um, you know, vessels. Uh, so actually having this land route was seen as a way of uh, ensuring that the troops could be got across that area uh, rapidly. And the other thing, and I'll, I'll, I'm going on a bit about it, but it's a, it's a bee in my bonnet. Uh, the other thing is about oil. Um, oil, of course, was developed in the, in the 19th century. But by the beginning of the 20th century, um, Churchill, who was the uh, first Lord of the Admiralty uh, in 19th, 12, I think it was, um, converted uh, British vessels, British Royal Navy vessels, war vessels, from the use of coal to the use of oil. And in so doing, that increased the range of uh, vessels by 50%. So it was 150%. And it was a big improvement in terms of the range of, of that. And also the numbers of people that were required to stoke the coal into the furnaces to drive the engines and so on was cut down by something like another 50%. So it meant, of course, they could put more armoured uh, people on the vessels, more soldiers, and marines and so on and so forth. Uh, so this was in 19... 19- so the impact and the significance of oil was appreciated. Of course, its full technological development was, 
you know, was 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 a long way off. But certainly in terms of its use for um, things of that nature. So oil was a real um, question in terms of, um, you know, the development of British policies. And Kitchener, again, specified that we need to have control of the oil. And the Americans also very soon after in the 1920s moved into Arabia and, and uh, Southern Arabia and there were deals between the British and, and the Americans over the question of essentially control of the oil industry. You know, the, the British Persian or BP, as it was called, uh, British Persian Oil Company, Aramco, the American uh, company, was was based in, in, in Saudi Arabia. So just to summarize in terms of India, it was very much seen as a, a vital economic component of, uh, of Britain's kind of rule. In terms of, in terms of Israeli... Um, technologies and so on and the desalination that was referred to um, they have certainly kind of um, made some innovations in those areas of a very significant kind and as the question implied correctly um, the Palestinians however are not the beneficiaries of this they continue to pay a high price um, you know and it's it's a major issue obviously in Gaza where one of the uh, difficulties is that the um, there's an aquifer under Gaza and this aquifer is in danger and vulnerable to becoming salinated because of the influx of uh, of salt sea uh, water into uh, into the uh, you know into the land. Um, so that's a, that's a major a major major problem. So it it could be uh, an important innovation, and of course for other peoples in the world, it could be a significant uh, development. Don't want to minimise that, but the um, Israelis have paid a great deal of attention to technological development. And going back to the roadmap that I was talking about, the 2030 Israel-UK roadmap, it's singled out as one of the issues over which uh, Britain wants to encourage uh, liaison between academic circles and industrial circles of collaboration between Israeli and British entities in order to kind of develop that. And, of course, everybody knows here they have been developing face recognition and surveillance techniques, which they've been, as they say, battle testing on the Palestinians. Uh, So that is a a major uh, sort of element within the equation. So technology is is very much foregrounded on that. Lastly, just on the right of return, and my my apologies, Sam, if I've been going on, just butt in and tell me to stop. Um, In terms of the right of return, it's, it's... probably the biggest single part of the equation. As I said, uh, hundreds of thousands of Palestinians were expelled in 48. It's difficult to estimate precise numbers, but there are Palestinians in refugee camps in the West Bank, um, in places like Balata, near Janine, in, in, in various other camps uh, across um, the West Bank. And those of you who have been will recall, and those of you who I hope will go, we'll see often written on the walls of these refugee camps the names of the original villages from which the inhabitants of the refugee camp came. So the connection and the connectivity between uh, these uh, refugees and their homeland is very, very strong and remains absolutely strong. And if people are asked where they come from, they don't say, I come from this refugee camp. They come from, and they will name a town which is now part of uh, occup- uh, a part of um, the Israeli state. So the right of return is a major issue. There are 
uh, refugee camps, uh, not only in Gaza and the West Bank and in East Jerusalem, of course, but there are refugee camps in Jordan, in Syria, in Lebanon, um, and perhaps other parts of the Arab world, I, I don't remember. Uh, and of course, there is a Palestinian diaspora, which is spread across the globe, which is, all, they are also refugees. We have to say it like it is. Um, they were not, they did not go abroad uh, of their own volition. They went because they were forced out and uh, obviously some subsequently went in order to try and make a livelihood and, and so on. So the right of return is, is, a, is, a, is a question that has to be resolved. And uh, there are, I think it's, I don't know what the current figures are, but it's estimated there are probably about 12 million maybe Palestinians across the globe. Uh, and I, I'm sure not all of them would want to return. They have long homes and settled as, as many refugees, uh, political refugees did here, like uh, comrades from South Africa, you know, and, and have stayed. But on the other hand, uh, if they want to return, they should have that right of return. And it's a challenging part of the equation. Um, Israel is obsessed with demographics. It holds regular discussions on the birth rates of different groups of people within Israel itself, um, where actually it's probably amongst the more orthodox Hasidic Jews that the birth rate is higher, uh, and the Palestinians is, is less than that. Uh, so this question of um, the right of return is is often tied in with all these other components. Thank you for that. Before um, I just go to the final, well, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll rattle through some final questions um, and then uh, just uh, some plugs for our future Labour Outlook Forum. So these ones, Bernard, are more to do with kind of action and sort of looking towards the future. Well, one's a kind of reflective one. The first is that you but relates to kind of action. Um, you, you mentioned the importance of the trade unions and your comparison of um, Britain and the American context um, in terms of Palestine solidarity. Um, what do you think is the most sort of, what's the most important thing to learn, if you like, from that um, from that work in the trade union movement? As you rightly said, is you know it's pretty mass support in the trade unions for for the Palestinian cause. What can we learn from from how that was built? Because obviously that wasn't always the case. Um, and some other questions too. Um, what do you think is uh, the, the one key thing that an international government outside the region, such as our own, um, could do to put more pressure on Israel? And these are kind of related, related to that. How are the recent direct action campaigns of groups like Palestine Action being effective at reducing the, cap the capacity of the British military companies who support Israeli aggression? And what more can be done? And also, what can people do at a CLP or trade union branch level um, to raise awareness and build links um, with Palestine? Um, so why you, why you uh, ponder on those are uh, just some uh, some kind of shout outs to future events um, and just to thank everyone for taking part. And you, Bernard, too, for, for answering, uh, for giving that great, great introduction or answer, answering people's questions. Um, to reiterate, too, to people who are listening, please do make a donation if you can. Um, so we can increase our web presence, you know, commission more people to write articles, do more events such as this. And, and please buy a ticket for Rise Festival too. Um, on, on that note, there was a kind of a very relevant, uh, a very, very, very relevant session at the Rise Festival this year. Um, uh, it will be a session entitled Free Palestine. Um, and it's a, a briefing with Mr. Fabrigati and a Q&A. Um, and like I say, that's part of the Arise Festival, which will take place on Monday, June the 12th. 
Um, for those who don't know, Mustafa is a Palestinian activist and politician who serves as General Secretary of the Palestinian National Initiative. Um, and uh, it'll be a really kind of valuable and uh, an exciting opportunity to explore these kind of issues further. Um, so please do register for that. Also to say, uh, Labour Outlook will also be involved in uh, Arise through our um, Socialist Ideas session. Uh, the first one of those um, will be on Gramsci, um, and it's entitled Gramsci and the Crisis, and that will be on Friday, June 2nd. So please do register for that as well. Uh, make sure you follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Uh, as I said, on Facebook, we're at Labour Outlook um, to keep up to date with what we're doing. Uh, and please also support the work of both Labour and Palestine and the Palestine Solidarity Campaign and make sure to individually and collectively be part of the international solidarity movement with the Palestinian people. And I'll hand over to Bernard now for the final words on how we can take that struggle forward. Thanks again, Bernard. Thanks, Sam. Well, in terms of kind of the trade unions, how can we learn from work that's been done there and what should we be doing? I think at a very basic level, um, to be honest, and I don't say this intending to kind of disparage or insult anybody, but education is an important part of that. Just simply telling the Palestinian story because um, there is a large amount of lack of knowledge um, amongst people. There is, there is a, a, an absence of understanding about what is actually happening. And of course, we're the victims of the media presentation of this. So the media presentation of it is is one which is simplistic and uh, biased and uh, puts it in terms of kind of some sort of equality of uh, e e equation of equality between the Palestinians and Israel. And of course, we all know it's completely asymmetrical. It's unbalanced. It's completely uneven um, in terms of the capacity of Israel to act in a military way to physically repress people in terms of what's happening in the West Bank with 530 odd checkpoints that people have to go through and those of you who've been will know uh, the experience that we have when we do that and Palestinians face that every day so a journey of a matter of you know half a mile or two miles might take um, you know hours to complete because people are held at checkpoints are maybe searched and, and, and maybe uh, the gates are closed arbitrarily and, and they're subject to all kinds of things. So just telling people the truth about what is happening is a vitally important task. It may seem a very self-evident one, but I think it's often one that um, we forget and we must remember to undertake because I understand that people feel that if they're critical of Israel, the equation is attempted to be drawn that you're being anti-Semitic. And I think we have to repudiate that completely. We are criticising a government acting towards the Palestinians in the same way we would criticise any government in the world if it treated citizens or people who it was uh, had jurisdiction over or control over or whose land they were occupying. We would be saying the same about any other country in the world that we are being say, that we are saying about Israel, so we are not singling out Israel in any kind of way, and we should not allow ourselves to be intimidated or silenced, or to be browbeaten into thinking that critical uh, being critical of Israel is to be anti-Semitic. It is not, um, and you know one could quote lots of examples uh, in relation to that. So that educational role, I think, is vital. I mean. Uh, back in the 1980s and 1990s, when I first began being involved in it, I literally um, spent hours 
sitting and talking with with with, with comrades about it, explaining what was happening and, and and winning them to support for that. And what we have seen, I think, in the trade union movement is a quite outstanding empathy and sense of solidarity that has come from the trade union movement in respect of Palestine. I wouldn't want to claim it, and I hope it isn't unique, but it is possibly one of the most strong uh, supporters of uh, Palestinians in the trade union movement globally uh, that there is anywhere else. There are uh, There is a growing um, movement, but, um, you know, it still has to blossom to the extent that we saw in relation to South Africa, which is what our ambition should be. Uh, this is a uh, important, critical uh, campaign that we're involved in of a gross injustice, uh, which, you know, we all should be kind of campaigning against uh, and putting forward. And I think people in that respect shouldn't be pessimistic. It's not going to be any quick fix. Everybody on this call is politically mature enough and intelligent to understand that. It's not going to be a quick resolution. But, you know, the same was said about the struggle against apartheid or the struggle in solidarity with the people of Vietnam fighting for their independence. It took time. And what happened in the United States of America, for example, was that Congress finished up voting for the boycott that was called for by the African National Congress, even during the time of Reagan's administration. And similarly here in Britain, it was during the Thatcher era, era that actually the campaign for uh, solidarity with the African National Congress and the fight against apartheid in South Africa was amongst its strongest. So, you know, don't be mesmerised by the fact that we have political leaders who are either entirely hostile to the Palestinians or are at best ambivalent or ambiguous about where they stand. We have to win the mass of people to the cause for Palestine. And I think we should be optimistic because it is a cause that is just and that's the essential underlying feature. In terms of pressure on Israel, and it relates to what I'm talking about, I think that the boycott, disinvestment and sanctions campaign, which has been called for by Palestinians, including by Palestinian trade union organisations and a coalition of, of, of groups inside Palestine, is an important vehicle for actually putting out the message about Palestine. It's interesting because at this moment in time, what is about to happen is that the Tory government are going to introduce legislation which are going to prohibit people actually uh, beginning or commencing or conducting boycott, disinvestment and sanctions campaigns. And they're going to, we don't know what the legislation will look like, but there are stories that the drafts of these laws uh, suggest that anything which is um, contrary to Britain's uh, foreign policy will not be permitted. So if Britain, as I mentioned at the very beginning, has a strategic relationship with Israel, anything which is deemed to be uh, cutting across that from the point of view of the government will be actually not permitted in law. And, and that's a really major thing. There's a coalition of something like 60 groups in Britain, including Palestine Solidarity, but in, including a lot of human rights organisations, NGOs and different groups of people who are coalescing to campaign against that because clearly it goes beyond the question of Palestine. It goes to the question of human rights and political solidarity with many other peoples across the globe. And we can't allow uh, you know, our voices to be silenced. We can't allow 
that solidarity to be suppressed by legislation uh, of the government. And, and I think it's therefore important that we take up resolutions in CLPs and in trade union movements uh, when we see the text of this uh, document actually challenging this, because there are certain areas where we can bring leverage, for example, in pensions funds, where some groups of people uh, invest in various companies in order to, you know, allegedly kind of um, maximize the benefits from the pensions for people. That they're often with companies, or they may be with companies who are involved in arms trade with Israel or other kinds of, you know, linkage uh, with the Israeli economy. And I think, therefore, you know, that's something uh, which is to be challenged. And, you know, solidarity will take all kinds of forms. And, you know, Palestine Action is is uh, demonstrating outside of Elbit, which has been a long running campaign that the PSC has been involved in. And they've uh, taken action, which is of a more direct uh, form of action. And, you know, th- th- I respect their right to, to choose to do that. Um, uh, but all the time, I think any of these initiatives that we take should have the objective of winning mass support for the Palestinians so that it's that collective mass pressure which forces our government to recognise the injustices that have been inflicted in the, on the Palestinians uh, and that we achieve the rights for the Palestinians to self-determination and to decide what kind of a society they want to live in, whether it's two states or one state, that's entirely a matter for the Palestinians to resolve, but they have to be in a position to do that. And taking the, if you like, the British boot off the neck of the Palestinians would be a big uh, step forward in terms of the Palestinians' capacity to resolve questions in terms of their just rights as a people. So solidarity to everybody. Thank you very much to Labour Outlook for uh, inviting me to speak and my best wishes to Labour Outlook for its work. Uh, and as a small footnote, if I can say to Sam and everybody, uh, I hope everybody on the call will uh, respond to your request for support and invitation for people to get involved. So thank you very much. Thank you so much, Bernard. That was a fascinating talk and a really inspiring way to end as well in terms of uh, not being mesmerised by the situation, certainly. Thanks, everyone, for coming. Please do, uh, please do remember to donate. Like I say, we need your support. Um, and I'll see you all on the future Labour Outlook Forum events. Have a great evening. And thank you again, Bernard. That was fantastic. Thank you.